You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am here with my amazing, super cool co-host, Dr. Carrie Vediant from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. How are y'all doing today? Hanging in there. That's good. It's spring, at least for some of us, right, Carrie? Yeah. <laughs> We're laughing because we're all warm and Carrie's all cold in Las Vegas, which is crazy. Yeah, we have to laugh about that. 75 and beautiful in Tennessee. I am tucked up in my warmest coat in my little <laughs> office. That is the temperature of whatever the outside, which is right now about 40 degrees, which is not okay because less than 57 is practically Arctic in my book. And we are so far under 57. It is not funny. I'm curious as to the very specificity of 57, like Heinz 57. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's because I was on a camping trip once and I, I declared that it was practically Arctic and someone pulled out their phone and said, it's 57 degrees out. And I'm like, all right, well, there we we have the marker now, 57 degrees or less is practically Arctic. And that has held for the better part of 20 years. I would be chilly at 57 too, I will admit, but it's gorgeous here. In fact, I looked out my window and the tulip tree, which is the Tennessee state tree is starting to bloom. And it just feels like spring is in the air. There's a tree called a tulip tree. It is the state tree for Tennessee, the tulip tree. It's really pretty for about four days until the wind blows and all the blossoms fall off the tree. But when it's there, it's a gorgeous tree because it's got all these beautiful purplish blooms on it. It's really pretty. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I have been binge watching the Vampire Diaries. <laughs> Isn't that nice. <laughs> so what adult does that? What adult binge watches the Vampire Diaries? I want to know. What adult does not binge watch something? Yes. It's like a guilty pleasure. I don't. Well, yeah, that's something's true. But why would you choose vampires and zombies and that kind of stuff? Well, I don't like zombies. I, I kind of think that people either like vampires or they like zombies, but they don't tend to be the same people. What's your opinion on that? Susan, are you a supernatural elitist? <laughs> like, I feel like vampires are in a totally different class of zombies. Like vampires, I always associate with interview with a vampire where you've got these like super rich vampires, because when you live for all eternity, you can, you, you can, can afford, accumulate, you can accumulate. And I feel like they always wear tuxes or, you know, fancy suits and capes and all of that. Whereas zombies have raggedy clothing and brains dripping down their face. Like I kind of get creeped out by zombies. I'm not into that, any of that gross horror, gross, ugly blood. I don't like horror. Like, I do not watch, like, anything like Freddy or Friday the 13th. Or Zombies don't qualify as horror? <laughs> okay, besides the fact that it's so cute the way you said that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's the Nashville horror. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's so hilarious. <laughs> like, movie-wise, I like dramas. I like romance stories and things like that. 
Yeah, like Outlander. Now, drama, romance, Outlander. That's cool. I like that. No zombies, no vampires at all in that show. Zombies, I don't think, have like romance and things like that. Whereas vampire movies, at least the ones that I like, have like that dramatic part to it okay that makes it worthwhile <laughs> yeah if you put me into a corner and made me choose i would definitely choose a vampire over a decaying human that's coming after me that's mean so yeah i would definitely go for the vampire for sure but what if you put werewolves in there does that change the calculus yeah that would scare me a crazed animal with blood coming for that yeah no I, w- I would go for the vampire i think oh but some of the werewolves are pretty good looking <laughs> i feel like vampires are more into blood whereas werewolves are more just into well they're supernatural but they're not immortal no werewolves are immortal or they have like super healing powers yes yes but they're not as immortal as vampires are but they look angry all the time though don't they what because vampires are singing and dancing <laughs> like i mean aside from maybe rocky horror picture show where they've got that vampire-esque dude yeah yeah all right well let's move on to our question of the day you mean the question besides vampires zombies or werewolves yes <laughs> all right so let's do a couple our first one is Hi, love the podcast and all the helpful info. I'm a healthy 37 year old and had six consecutive pregnancy losses. First was a blighted ovum discovered by ultrasound at nine weeks. And then five chemical pregnancies where HCG did not rise over 20 and then fell within a few days. Both my husband and I have had an extensive RPL panels, including chromosomes for both of them. She's had HSG and a saline, regular cycles with ovulation around cycle day 14 to 16, They've done Medicaid cycles with Clomid and Letrozole, progesterone, trigger shot, in addition to four IUIs. Scheduled for hysteroscopy in about a month. My question is, is it possible that I have something wrong anatomically in my uterus and or tubes that could be found with the hysteroscopy that was not detected by the saline ultrasound? Thanks so much. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can see endometritis. You can see other inflammation. You can see some of the more subtle changes. Like a saline ultrasound is good, but it's not a definitive, like you don't have a camera actually looking. Sometimes when you go in and you look, you can catch a different angle. You can see something a little bit differently. So yeah, it's entirely possible they'll see something that was not as readily apparent on the saline sonogram. Yeah, I agree too. I mean, there are times when you go in and you're like, wow, I didn't know she was going to have this little garden of all these lumpy, bumpy things in there. So absolutely, I think you can find some things that are different. And the other thing I think about too, and but not in the case of this patient since she's had a normal HSG, is sometimes you can see patients that have had three or four recurrent losses, early losses, biochemical losses. And lo and behold, you start to find out that it's really a tubal issue, that it's really pregnancies that have implanted in the tube and just stopped growing early. I don't think it's the case with this patient, but for other patients out there who are having multiple biochemical losses, definitely make sure that your fallopian tubes are checked just to make sure that there's not really a tubal issue with the pregnancy implanting in the tube and just not growing early on because it's in the tube. The unspoken question here also is what if the saline ultrasound is normal? I mean, not the saline ultrasound, the hysteroscopy. What would y'all recommend in that situation? Well, I think you need to check the embryos because, you know, the first loss was a blighted ovum. And a lot of times that blighted ovum is trisomy 16. And so, you know, the other ones were too early to be able to check them genetically. But really, that's the only other big piece of information that we don't have is the quality of the embryos based on their genetics. And, you know, even if that's not the cause, total cause for the loss, it wipes out about half of the causes for recurrent pregnancy loss or for pregnancy loss in general, because about 50 percent of losses are due to a genetic abnormality. And if we can kind of wipe that 
that slate clean, put a normal embryo in at the time of IVF, it gives the patient a better chance of pregnancy. What I tell patients in that type of situation is that a lot of it kind of depends on where you are emotionally. Studies show us that most people with recurrent pregnancy loss are eventually going to be successful. But the problem is we can't tell you if that's going to be in the next pregnancy or three, four, five pregnancies down the road. And so if you're at a point that you're done and you want to do everything else that you can, just like Abby said, considering IVF with PGTA would probably be a good option. And I think that kind of actually leads in to what we were going to talk about today. So our topic today is PGTA. And Carrie, what does PGTA stand for? So pre-implantation genetic testing, and the A is aneuploidy. And the reason that A is important is because there's other brands of PGT out there, PGTM, PGTSR, but the one that we're going to focus on is PGTA today, because that's the one that the vast majority of our patients can find use for. So when can you use PGTA? Can you use it in IUI cycles? Is it only for IVF? So PGTA is a part of an IVF cycle. Essentially, what we're looking for is whether or not the embryo has too few or too many chromosomes. And the only way to be able to get that information is by taking a sampling from the embryo. So in other words, after we put the egg and the sperm together and the embryo grows to the fifth day when it has around 140 cells, the embryologist can take a sample from the part that will become the placenta, and about two weeks later, they'll get genetic results back. And we're really looking for the number of those whole chromosomes. And if you think of a chromosome, it looks like a big X. So if you remember back to biology, somewhere along the line, you know, we all should have 46 chromosomes, and the X and the Y make you a male, and two Xs make you a female. And so when they biopsy those cells, they're able to say that it has the right number of chromosomes, not too few and not too many. And so we can only do that through IVF. There used to be some testing around 10, 15, 20 years ago that was kind of similar, but apparently it didn't work quite as well. How does this compare, Carrie? So a lot of the prior testing, there's kind of two ways to think about it. So one is when it was done and two is how it was done. So the first part is when it was done. And back, you know, when... Back in the dark ages. Started training <laughs> was what I was going to say. Thank you very much, Abby. I've been through all those different iterations from no genetic testing all the way up to what we're doing now. So it used to be that we didn't grow blastocysts very well. Extended culture was, was really not a thing. And so we would get embryos to day three called a cleavage stage embryo. And then we would transfer at that point. And so that was the first point at which we started genetic testing. And so the difference between a day three embryo and a blastocyst is pretty significant because there's a ton of embryos that will make it to day three. There are not a ton of embryos that will make it to day five. And so when you have a day three embryo, that embryo has approximately eight cells to it, give or take a couple. Whereas a day five blastocyst has roughly 150 to 300 cells. And so when you take even just one or two cells from a cleavage stage, you are taking a much larger percentage than when you're taking even four to six cells from a blastocyst. And so what we found is that when we were taking cells from a cleavage stage embryo, that there was some damage done. Now, it wasn't like you were going to get the embryo tested and then the resulting child was going to be missing an arm because that's the cell that was taken. It does not work like that. Thank goodness. 
<laughs> seriously, I know, right? Like there'd be a lot of kids walking around with no elbows. And so those cells are what's called totipotent, meaning they can become anything. And so it doesn't matter whether you take one or two out because you're not going to remove a body part by doing that, but it does inherently damage the embryo. And so we saw a negative effect. When you say a negative effect, what are you meaning? An embryo that's less likely to survive, to implant, to, to go the distance and make a baby. Whereas when you take, you know, four to six cells out of a blastocyst, that's a different story because you're not taking nearly as much. And so really there's no good documented effect of the impact that the biopsy has on a blastocyst. It's reasonable to say, yes, there probably is some effect, but it's not been big enough to be really effectively measured to say, if you're doing a blastocyst biopsy versus no blastocyst biopsy, like we don't really know what the effect is. I mean, those tests have not been done very well because when you're putting in an untested embryo, you don't know if that's normal or not. And even in our patients under 35, there's a very good chance you're going to have abnormal embryos because of the way that the chromosomes do and do not separate. And so those studies are really hard to do. And so far, nobody's really pinpointed and said, oh, this is a a big nasty effect from doing the biopsy versus not. So there's probably some effect, but it's subtle enough that we really haven't seen and quantified what that effect is. One other thing along those same lines that I want to add to a little bit is a lot of times patients will come in and say, so do you think I should freeze all my embryos or I should do them fresh? And so I think they've read things that, you know, about genetic testing. And I think they're focused on the freezing versus non-freezing. And the reason we freeze embryos now is so that we have time to take those cells, do genetic testing. And in that process, we have to freeze the embryos for at least a few weeks until we know the results. And so they'll come in and say, well, I've heard freezing is, is really a lot more effective. Well, it's not the freezing of the embryos. It's what we do genetically from the, or what the information we get genetically from the embryos that potentially gives us you know, helpful information, not the freezing and thawing process. I agree that knowing if you're putting back a chromosomally normal embryo definitely increases your chances of taking home a baby. However, there is some data to say that when you're going through your IVF cycles, your hormones are all crazy. And so some of those hormones include progesterone, which can open and close the window of opportunity for the lining of the uterus to accept a embryo to implant especially in women with diminished ovarian reserve or women who are older, they're more likely to have those progesterone spikes. And so in those types of situations, actually fresh versus frozen, even if you were comparing normal embryo to normal embryo, you would be getting a potentially better pregnancy rate. But I think people are more focused on like when they're talking about the genetic part, they're thinking about freezing embryos versus, and that's why we have to freeze them is so we can get that result back basically. Right. I mean, most of the time, there are very few centers that can do chromosome testing and essentially potentially transfer the embryo the next day. Most of us don't have that capability and it really shouldn't be that big of a deal. Now, how does the likelihood of having chromosomally abnormal embryos vary with age? So the higher in age you are, the higher percentage of embryos are likely to be abnormal. And so it's not that if you start when you're 20, you're going to have zero abnormal embryos. And if you go to 50, you're going to have 99% abnormal embryos. It's not linear like that. Even the 20 year olds have a percentage of abnormals because the way that you get those abnormals is that the chromosomes within the eggs 
at the last minute, right before ovulation, they separate. So that instead of having 46 chromosomes coming from the woman providing the egg, you have 23. And when that separation occurs, there is no mechanic working inside the ovary and the eggs that's putting WD-40 on the connectors between these two chromosomes. And so even in a 20-year-old, it's possible that they're not going to separate out the way that they should. It just becomes statistically far more likely when you're in your 40s for those connections to not be real smooth and the chromosomes to either run away together or run away in the opposite direction together, leaving you with too many or too few chromosomes. And so when we were talking with Amy Jones on one of our prior episodes, she brought up the point that when you are working with a woman who's under 35, they typically see about 60% of the embryos are normal. And that is a much lower percentage than most of us thought it was going to be for a young woman like that. Like, you know, I remember thinking like, oh, you know, it's going to be 80, 90%, something like that. No, it's, it's really probably closer to 60, maybe 70. And so that's the point where you are starting. And then by the time you get up to mid forties, then you're looking at instead of 60% normal, you're looking at about 90% abnormal. That's the real reason we do this is because if you are so fortunate as to get multiple embryos, you want to know which ones are good and which ones are not, because if none of them are good, you don't want to waste your time with those embryos. You want to go straight into another cycle, get more embryos and have a better chance, or at least know that information. So you're not wasting time on something that is destined to never work. And to that end too, for women in their forties, you know, like Carrie said about 90% are genetically abnormal at age 40. It goes up almost exponentially at 41, 42, 43. Um, I think we're seeing a lot more people that are going through IVF doing genetic testing, which is great um, because a lot more patients recently, at least in Tennessee, have insurance coverage. But we're seeing a lot more women over 40. They tend to get less eggs. And unfortunately, we, we're seeing a lot of people just because human reproduction is very inefficient that have a lot of embryos that are genetically abnormal. And in several situations in women in you know, 42, 43, 44, we don't find any that are genetically normal. And that's certainly not good news, but at least that kind of helps, I think, our patients decide you know, if this is the right option for them or if it's time to move on to something different. So say somebody goes through IVF and they do their PGTA testing and they get a phone call or an email with their report. What are things that they might see on this report? They can see normal embryos. So the report may read 46XX, normal female, 46XY, normal male. And it can be really any combination of anything else. It can be whole chromosomes, either too few or too many in the embryo. It can be segmental portions, too few, too many in the embryo. What do you mean by segmental portions? What does that mean? So like just a, not a whole chromosome, not a whole X that's added or subtracted, but just a piece of the chromosome that's added or subtracted. And in any one of those situations, most of us, I think, would agree, those would certainly not be our first choice embryos to transfer because although there are some cases where some of those embryos may in some ways change or, or some of the bad cells may be pushed out of the way when they implant in a patient, for the most part, we feel like that those patients have a much higher risk of miscarriage and a much higher chance that the pregnancy just won't be a good pregnancy. So we generally don't recommend transferring those. We want to transfer the ones that are normal, either 46XX or 46XY. So Carrie, are there some other labels of embryos that we might be seeing nowadays that we may not have seen a few years ago? 
So the mosaics are the ones that we start to see more of. And what mosaic means is that some of the cells within that sample were read as normal and some of the samples were read as abnormal. And typically when you're looking at a normal and an abnormal result, it's not that 100% of those cells were normal or 100% were abnormal. It's on a scale. And so everybody's lab does it maybe a little bit differently, but in general, you know, normal is overwhelmingly good and abnormal is overwhelmingly bad. Well, mosaic falls in the middle. And it means that a percentage of the cells were read as good, what we wanted to see in a percentage were not. Mosaics can be divided into low and high mosaics. So high are going to be a higher percentage of abnormal, but not enough to tip you into a straight abnormal reading. Low mosaics are going to be a lower percentage, but not enough to tip you into normal. And so when we look at those results, we typically have them broken out by what chromosomes are affected. And that's how a lot of us decide what we want to do with them. You know, oftentimes if you see a high mosaic, you know, that's too close to abnormal. Most of us don't feel comfortable transferring those. When you have a low mosaic, it depends. If you've got multiple chromosomes affected, a lot of us won't transfer those. If you have a different number of chromosomes, meaning the chromosomes are numbered essentially one to 22 in terms of their pairs, and not all chromosomes are equal. Like chromosome number one is huge. Chromosome number 22 is pretty tiny. And what genes are on them are different. And so, for example, I tend to use a schematic that our lab has helped us with to say, okay, these chromosomes, if you transfer, if the embryo is okay, it's legitimately okay. Like if you have a surviving pregnancy, it's more likely to go the distance. If you don't have a surviving pregnancy, those numbers are probably higher in a mosaic, but not necessarily going to carry in all the way. So there's, there's a lot of interpretation with mosaics. And there are many, many physicians out there who won't transfer a mosaic just because it's not normal. So why would we set you up for that? And the ones that we worry about are the ones that are more like chromosome 21, for example, like that's down syndrome. So even if it's not fully affected and it's just a mosaic, we're pretty skittish about transferring those because of the impact on the resulting child. So I'd like to say that for mosaics, I definitely feel this is somewhere that we are on a kind of moving target at our clinic. I can say that we have gradually evolved. I wouldn't even want to say change, but kind of evolved what our policy has been over the past two or three years. As we've gotten more data, I think we've all kind of evolved. Exactly. But this is definitely one of those very specific to your doctor and specific to your clinic type of things. And specific to you as a patient, like you're going to approach somebody with six miscarriages very differently than you're going to approach a first baby or a first IVF cycle versus a fourth one. Like this is a moving target. If you have mosaic embryos or if you have an abnormal embryo that you would personally want to transfer, you need to sit down with your doctor and discuss what are your clinic policies? What is that physician's thoughts on it? What are your thoughts on it? And sometimes you may or may not come to the same decision as each other. (laughs) At our clinic, there are certain things we can do. There are certain things we can't do. And then there are certain things that we will discuss on a case-by-case basis. And I imagine that's probably the way it works in most places, but realize that this is definitely not one of those, like everybody is going to do exactly the same thing. Yeah. Mosaics are a hard one because 
even when you have a mosaic that comes back of, you know, affecting chromosome number X, where on that chromosome makes a big difference. The size makes a huge difference. Like this is something where we get the genetic counselors involved from the beginning because they have a lot of input, but even with their input, you don't know exactly, well, what, what would a child who has this chromosomal problem, if this is real, look like? And in many cases, the pregnancy wouldn't survive, but in some cases it will. And some of these genetic conditions are total wild cards because you don't know what's going to happen. And there's just no way to predict. But another thing to remember is just because you have a chromosomally normal baby does not mean that there is no chance for other non-chromosomally related birth defects or health issues. So remember, chromosomal normality does not equal perfect and normal. And so that's something else that you need to weigh in when you're making your decision making. So any last thoughts about PGTA? I don't think so. We covered a lot of the good stuff about it. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's really interesting. I was just thinking how things have evolved over time. I mean, for us in our clinic, and I think for you guys as well, it's become a really pretty commonplace thing. And so I think most people, maybe not everybody, but I think most people that decide to do IVF at probably most centers, you're going to hear something about this because this is sort of the latest and kind of best thing that we can do to really try and hone in on what the best embryo is. So, you know, it is costly um, if you have to pay out of pocket. And my thinking has evolved a lot over time as well. But my personal opinion is, I think it's really worth what you pay for it because it gives you really great information. Even if it's bad information, at least it helps you kind of move on to kind of your next step. So I I would strongly encourage you to consider it if you're planning to do IVF. Absolutely. And the way I think of it, even on the cost standpoint, is in a lot of centers, at least for us, that if we were to randomly choose wrong for your initial embryo transfer and you had to come back for a second embryo transfer, you would have paid for your PGTA. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's good things to think about. It's good things to talk to your doctor about. And it's a nice option to have available. So to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. would love to hear from you. We are also on Instagram and Facebook. So hop on and leave us a like or follow and say hello. And you can also visit us on fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment, or even leave us an episode idea. So don't hold back. We'd love to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to y'all soon. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Theralogics. Theranatal Fertility Supplement Ovavite includes optimal absorption CoQ10 formulated to support healthy egg quality in women going through IVF or any woman preparing for pregnancy in her 30s and beyond. Ovavite is independently tested and certified by NSF International.